Amen. All right, brethren, as I said, we're going to be continuing here in Ephesians. Uh, we looked at the first 15 or 14 verses here as Paul laid out for us the great blessings that we have in Christ. And now, uh, and you could look at all those different things, as we were chosen in Him, predestined to be sons, adopted, redemption, as Aaron preached the other week, that God has made known to us the mystery of His will. We have an inheritance in Him. All these glorious things that God has lavished upon us in Christ. And that's a, really a main emphasis there in those first 14 verses. And now Paul uh, turns his attention here. He, he, he turns his attention to letting these chosen, these redeemed, these adopted sons of the living God know that he's praying for them. He's praying for them. And that is the subject matter for us this morning. Paul's prayers. And brethren, this, this morning... The, the, this topic of prayer is, is certainly worth our consideration for a number of reasons. Brethren, prayer directly applies to your Christian life. And we're going to learn a lot here in how Paul prays and what Paul prays and how that's important for us in the Christian life. And brethren, as, as God's Word comes to us, yes, this is written to the Ephesian church who they lived couple thousand years ago but brother this is God's word to us this is God's word to you as you sit here in your chair God speaks to us this morning and really uh, I want this morning uh, and, and the word here uh, to it ought to shape us brethren it ought to shape us on on how we think how we think of the Lord and it ought to shape us on how we live and it most certainly will inform our prayer life and it ought to if we're going to be men and women of the children of the living God, we ought to know how to pray, right? And we talk about prayer every single week at the prayer meeting, exhorting us to pray. And we're going to look at some of these things this morning as we, as we examine Paul's prayer. And, and I, I've titled this sermon here, uh, That You May Know. And that comes right here in verse 18. Paul is praying that these Christians may know. They may know several things that we're going we're gonna to walk through here. That they may know what is the hope to which they've been called. That they may know what is the riches of God's inheritance. You see that there. That they may know what is the greatness of the power of God that is working toward us who believe. Paul's desire is that these Christians would know. And he prays for them. He prays for them. Now, I don't want to this morning look so much at Paul's example of prayer. I was thinking, uh, Nick did a few sermons on, uh, you know, James, teach us to pray. Uh, Jesus, teach us to pray. And, and, and this, would, this, would have, this would be a great text uh, of, of Paul, teach us to pray. Um, and, but I don't want to look at so much Paul's praying, although we can learn a lot from how he prays, but I want to look at the content of his prayers. What specifically is he praying for and how is that applicable to us as God's people today? Really important for us. What does that look like? So as we dive in this morning, I want you to keep that in mind, that you may know. And if you were paying attention to our readings this morning, both readings in Jeremiah and in Philippians 3 have this kind of idea of, of knowing, knowing who God is. 
And we'll get to that more in a minute here. But let's go ahead, brethren, and, and, and dive right in to the passage here. Let's look at first verse 15, the report that Paul heard. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Brethren, Paul heard of the faith of these Christians. He heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for all the saints. Now, you got to think about this. Remember, Paul's in jail, right? He's in, he's in jail here. He's in chains. And he has probably not seen these Ephesians or been to Ephesus in maybe five to seven years. And you just think of it, brethren. Just think of it. Paul labored in Ephesus for at least two years. He was there. And he has no contact with them. And you can just think, Paul, and, and try to put yourself in his shoes here. He, uh, he doesn't know if his labor was in vain. He, he doesn't know what's going on in the church. He's not sure how they're walking. He spent all this time here laboring and preaching and preaching and preaching. Then he gets a prayer, he gets a prayer report, so to speak. He gets a report. And he hears that these Christians are walking in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, they're clinging to Him. And that they're walking in love toward all the saints. This, the, these are the marks of true and biblical Christianity. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love. Love for the saints. You can imagine just how ecstatic He is. Just how encouraged He is to hear. He heard of their faith, brethren. And he bursts out in prayer. He bursts out in prayer. Now it's interesting that Paul hears of their faith and their love. This is not the first time Paul hears of the faith and love of churches and or Christians. He says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians, that he, heard, he, he heard of their faith, and their faith sounded forth all over the world for those Christians in Thessalonica. He says it to Philemon. When he writes to Philemon, he says, I, I've, I've heard, I hear of your love and your faith. Paul has heard. Brethren, it's got, it got me thinking a little bit uh, this week. Do other people hear of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that we have for the saints, for one another, for the church? Do people hear that? I mean, what... What, is, what do people hear about our church? Do they hear that Redeemer is a church that is, is one that has faith in Christ? They walk in faith and they love God's people. Is that what people hear of your family or of you individually? It's got me really thinking about that, brethren. That the faith resounds a lot. When we talked about Pastor Wang Yi this morning, the brothers in prison in China. And we've heard of His faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His love for the saints. That resounds, brethren. And I want it to be like that for our church. And I think it has been. Some of you are here because you heard of our church somehow and you've come here and you've seen love and, 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 and you've seen the faith. You've seen it here. But I want us to grow in that more and more and more that people would see and hear. That family loves Christ. That family loves the saints. That church is a loving church. That brother or sister has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at how they live. That our faith would resound and burst out of these walls to the world that people would hear. And brother, when Paul hears of it, 
he just can't help but pray. He just can't help. He says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now there's a few things that we can learn here about, about praying from Paul. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just going to kind of shoot some of these out for us this morning. Is that Paul prayed unceasingly. You see that there in the text. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. His prayer life was not sporadic. <laughs> it, is, it is a constant constant walk with the living God. And how often is the case in our own life that our prayer life is so sporadic, not unceasing as Paul's was. He prayed gratefully. He gave thanks constantly for the brethren here. He was excited to hear of the news going on in other churches and in other people's lives around the world. Brethren, when we share in the time of gospel advancement, what are we doing? We're giving a report, so to speak. Sometimes very specific of certain missionaries that we support or something maybe more ge generic and general about, about what's going on in the church and other parts of the world. Brother, does that stir your heart? When you, when you hear a report of what God's doing in the world, does that not excite you? Aaron said that. And I thought, oh, how fitting. How fitting. That ought to excite us to pray for China, to lift up our brethren there. Does it excite you, brethren? When you read these reports, when you, when you get an email from a missionary, when you, when you read statistics or, 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 or you watch a video or, or, what, or what have you, does it not stir your heart? Does it drive you to, 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 to then go into prayer for people? It ought to. And that's our desire as a church. We would give these reports and it would stir us up to pray, to pray for God's people. And that's the next thing we learn here about Paul's praying. Paul prayed unselfishly, brethren. He prayed for other people. Paul had a lot going on in his life. He was in jail. He had suffered. You just think of, of, of you read, what is it, 2 Corinthians was it 9 or 10, 12 maybe, of all the, all the sufferings of Paul. I mean, the man suffered 40 lashes minus one. Six times? Is that what the text says there? Six times across the back? The man suffered for the cause of Christ. And yet here he is unceasingly praying for other people praying for their needs. And he tells them that. He says, I'm praying for you. And then he tells them what he's praying for. Think of how encouraging that is. When a brother or sister comes to you and says, brother, sister, I'm praying for you. And not and listen, we've got to be careful here because I'm guilty of this too. Brother, I'll pray for you. And we don't pray for that person. Anyone else do that in here? Brethren. But how encouraging it is when you know that brother's praying for you and they're, and they're being serious about it. It's something that they just say to be godly. And I'm guilty of that. But how encouraging it is when someone tells you, Louise, Nikki, Sierra, Nick, brother, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you in this situation here that you're experiencing in your life. And I'm praying that God would do this, 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 and this. How encouraging that is. How encouraging. Brother, will you pray for others? Will you pray for other people? Do you pray for other people? Examine your own prayer life. This is really striking here. Does your prayer life mostly consist of praying for yourself? Or are you a man or woman of prayer who's praying for other people? Brethren, it's hard at times. We get so wrapped up and, and, and whatever's going on in our life, our struggles, our situations, our burdens, our, but brethren, we ought to look at Paul. A man who unceasingly and generously, unselfishly prayed for other people. 
How encouraging. And how encouraging it is for these Ephesians to hear Paul's praying for us. There he is in jail pleading, interceding for me. How encouraging, brethren. How encouraging. And when you pray for one another, it undoubtedly strengthens each other. There is a supernatural work that goes on in your heart that I can't really explain when you pray for someone else. Your heart and your soul is knit to them. That's just biblical. Because it's you're pouring out someone else before the living God. And there's supernatural power in that, brethren. Supernatural power to help strengthen one another in the fight of faith. Now, what does Paul pray for here? Well, verse 17. He says, Remembering you in my prayers that. And then he lists four things here that's going to govern our time this morning on what Paul is praying for. He prays, verse 17, that they would know more of God. We're going to get to that in a second. That they would grow, that, the, that, 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 that God would give them the Spirit so that they would grow in the knowledge of Him, of the Lord. He prays, secondly, that they would know the hope that they have been called to. That's verse 18. Also, verse 18, he prays for number three, that they would know the riches of God's inheritance. And number four, in verse 19, that they would know the immeasurable power God is working on their behalf. Four things, brethren, we're going to look at those this morning. Now, it's interesting here. What does Paul pray for? What does Paul not pray for? Brother, he doesn't come in and pray that God would bless them materially. He doesn't pray for their finances. He doesn't pray that they'd be in good health. He doesn't pray for their job situation. He doesn't pray for their marriages. He doesn't pray for their children. He doesn't pray for their safety. He doesn't pray uh, for their persecution. He doesn't even pray for their gospel witness. And all of these things are good and right to pray for. They're all good and right to pray for, but that's not what Paul prays for. And we see here just how Paul is wired. He's just wired this way. He's just why he just wants to pray. Oh, that God give them your spirit, that they would know more of you. That's the first thing he prays for. Number one, verse seventeen, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. This is Paul's chief concern: that God's people would know more of God. <laughs> That God's people would know more of God. Not just know about Him, but to know Him personally. To, to, for you to grow in your knowledge of Him. Now, how are you going to do that? How's that going to happen? By the Spirit. That's why Paul says that here. That He may give you the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or chapter 2. He says this. He says, "We receive the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God." So there it is, brethren. The Spirit who is from God is given to us that we may understand, that we may comprehend, that we may know that we may know more of who God is. 
The Spirit is our teacher, 1 John chapter 2. He teaches us truth about God. He's the one who opens up our eyes to behold the wondrous things of God out of His Word. Brother, our God is incomprehensible, and yet He has made Himself known. <laughs> He's made Himself known to us and to you. Now listen, you can't know God fully because God is, is, is infinite and, and we're finite, right? You can't know Him fully, but you can know Him truly. You could truly know the Lord. You could know Him. Not just about Him, but to know Him. Now listen, God revealed Himself to Israel in the Old Testament. You get that there uh, uh, in, 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 in the beginning of Exodus. You get that there to uh, uh, Abraham as well. God makes Himself known to Israel. But it's not only to Israel that God makes Himself known. We read in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That the Lord Jesus Christ came that the Gentiles might know. That He might reveal Himself to them. Brother, that, that, that's you and I. Christ came that we may know God. That's why He came, that we would know Him. And it's, it's interesting that Paul's primary desire, his primary burden, his primary prayer was for the Spirit to reveal more of the Father. More of God to Himself or, 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 or to the saints. And brother, listen, this is not just for pastors. You can't sit here in the pews here or in your chairs or whatnot and say, well, I'm not a pastor, so I don't need to know that much about God. Brother, don't be content in knowing little about God. Don't be content in that. Paul prays for the church, from, from, the, from the youngest Christian to, to the oldest saint, that they would all know more of God, that they would grow in their knowledge of Him. Paul prays the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. He prays the same thing in Philippians chapter 1. He prays the same thing in Philemon. It is... It is the first thing it seems like Paul is always desiring that the brethren would grow here. That they would grow. Now listen, brethren, your pursuit of God to know Him and to know more of Him is the most important thing in your life. You need to be convinced of that, church. To know Him and to know more of Him is the most important thing in your life. It is more important than your job. It is more important than your marriage. It is more important than your family and your children and your finances and your health and everything to know God, to know Him. You must, brethren, be convinced of that. You must be convinced that to know more of God is more important than your next meal of food. Do you hunger for the living and true God? Do you hunger to know Him? Will you pursue Him, brethren? Will you seek after Him? Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, he said, there's a surpassing worth in knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Surpassing worth, brethren. It's worth more than anything. <laughs> anything. Anything that this world has to offer in your pursuit of knowing God. Brother, I remember as a young Christian, um, and I don't remember exactly the circumstances here of, of how this came about, but as a young Christian, I was cut to the heart. 
cut to the heart that I knew more about my baseball team, about my football team. I knew more about golf. I knew more about basket weaving and eating hot dogs or what have you, any sport you have out there than I knew about the living God. Because I, 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 that was a huge idol for me was sports. Watch Sports Center three or four times a day. Brother, I knew more. Stats, I knew more. Everything of every sport than my own God. And that hurt me, brethren. I was cut to the heart in that. And brethren, listen. Don't let your knowledge of things in the world, no matter how good they are, no matter how good they are, outweigh your pursuit in knowing God. To know Him. Brethren, don't, don't let your knowledge of plumbing outweigh your knowledge of God, brother. Don't let your knowledge of, 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 of animals and, and, and in your job outweigh your knowledge of the living and true God or airplanes or space things that you do, brother. I don't know. It might be secret. I'm, I don't know. You know, or, 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 or of, of, of children or of oils or of giving birth or of cooking chicken. Brethren, don't, brother, don't let it outweigh your knowledge of God. Amen. Amen. But brethren, it, how true is that though? You've got to examine your life here. There's nothing more important. <laughs> There's nothing more important, no matter how good it is, no matter how necessary it is. Pursue your God. Pursue your God. Don't be content in knowing little of Him. It is a delight to Him, brethren. He says that in Jeremiah chapter 9. You get one boast in this world, and it's not that you're wise and smart, not that you're big and strong, that you know and understand who God is. And that's a gift, so you can't brag about it. <laughs> you can't be prideful in it. Because the Spirit of the living God opens up your eyes and reveals to you who God is. And He does that primarily through His Word. You know how I got to know more of my God than I did of baseball teams? Soaking this book in, brethren. Soaking this book in. Brethren, that's how this church was started. It was birthed many years ago out of a few families getting together to study who is God. That's how this church got started. Six, seven years ago, whatever it was, a couple of families just wanting to know more of who God is. And here we are now with the church here, brethren. You want to be a better husband? You want to be a better wife? You want to be a better father, a better mother? Study who God is and what He's done for you in the Gospel. Brother, the more you know Him personally, not just of things about Him, the more you know Him personally, the more you will trust Him, the more you will love Him, the more you will wait upon Him, the more you will believe in Him, the more you will have zeal for Him, the more you will hate sin, the more you're going to grow in your boldness and your faith and your love. The more you're going to stand firm, brethren. You remember what he says there in Psalm 46 in the midst of chaos? God says, Be still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, our fortress. Do you know him? Oh, brethren, pray for one another that God would open up our eyes to know more of him. Will you do that? Will you pray for one another? Will you pray for other churches, other brethren in parts of the world to know more of God? We ought to do that. That's our greatest need. Secondly, 
Paul prays here that we would know the hope of our calling. See that there in verse number 18. What is that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? Actually, let's back up a minute. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. To have the eyes of your heart enlightened. This describes what will happen when God gives the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, and the enlightenment will prepare you to know what Paul is going to be talking about here. To have the eyes of your heart enlightened so that we may know, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, if I were to try to explain what, what it means to have the eyes of your hearts enli enlightened, that's, that's, a, that's an idiom, right? You don't, you don't have eyes in your heart, okay? But we're talking about something here, brethren. It's to see beyond present circumstances, to trust in God and His promises, to have a biblical perspective, to see clearly, to be enlightened, to be able to see here. I was thinking about this with, with Caleb and with, with, with Caleb and Joshua back there in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And I don't have the time to go into the whole story, but remember he, the, there were two of those spies that went out to spy out Canaan, the promised land that God had promised as their inheritance that, that they were going to come in and, 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 and take a member. Uh, they went out and, and ten spies brought a bad report. Remember, there's uh, the men in the field or, or in the land. Or, or they're, they're, they're big, they're giants. There's a lot of them. We can't do it. Remember Caleb and Joshua, Caleb especially, says, oh, no, 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 we could take them. Our God will fight for us. We can't turn back. we got to go in. We could do it. God is with us. Yahweh is there with us to battle for, this, for us as His people. It's our inheritance. That's ours. We can go take it and conquer it. Remember the people, they wanted to stone them, and they, and they wanted to turn back there. And then later on, brethren, um, Remember, Caleb and Joshua were the only ones of that generation to enter into the promised land. And in Joshua chapter 14, verse 7, Caleb is recalling this account back in the book of Numbers. And he says this. He says, I brought back word according to my heart. So, brethren, what I think the idea here is that Caleb's heart was enlightened. He could see in, in light of the promise of God. And that promise gave him hope. It gave him hope. He trusted God. He held firm to God's Word. He believed in the power of God to conquer their enemies. That's exactly what Paul's praying for here. In the same way, brother, he's, Paul's praying that our eyes would be opened to know the hope to which God has called us. And our calling here is, is a calling unto salvation. It's a salvific calling. The hope that we have for the future, brethren, Remember, we are in Christ <laughs> because we've heard the word of truth and believed the gospel and have been sealed with the promised spirit that Aaron preached on the other week. We are in Christ. God has called us. And because we have the spirit, because we have been sealed in him, we have a blessed hope. We have hope hope, brethren, 
And let me remind you that Paul reminds them in the next chapter that these Ephesians, he said, remember, you had no hope. You had no hope. And you were without God in the world. You were dead in your sin. You were a child of wrath. No hope. Separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And now he says you have hope. <laughs> and he wants them to understand more of that. To understand more, brother. We have, our future is certain. We have a certain future of being preserved and coming into the end and having eternal life with God. Brethren, this is not that things might turn out well for you. It's not, well, maybe things will work out for me in the end. It's a firm conviction, brethren. We have a firm conviction, and Paul wants us, including myself, to understand more of that. Even in the face of all appearances to the contrary. Remember Abraham? Abraham, what does it say about Abraham and this idea of hope? Right? He, he hoped against hope. Being fully convinced that God was able to do what He promised. You see, there it is, brethren. He hoped against hope, against all appearances to the contrary, that God was able to do what He had said. Brother, we have a blessed hope. We will inherit a kingdom. We have eternal life. We will dwell in the very presence of God for eternity, brethren, because we are in Christ, because He has called us, because we have His Spirit. And brethren, in light of that hope, in light of our calling, it, it, it ought to shape how we live. Paul says to walk worthy of it there in chapter 4. He says, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And how could we walk contrary to that? We've been called to eternal life. We're going to be with our God forever. Our sins are forgiven, brethren. <laughs> We've been redeemed. He's given us His Spirit. How else could we walk? But in humility, as Paul says there, that we'd walk worthy of it. And not just to walk worthy of it, but to study it, to, to, to dwell upon it, to meditate upon the hope that we have. It's, it's a certain one, brethren. It's certain. Because you've believed in Christ. That we would live it out. Brethren, you, you know, what causes people, like we prayed for this morning, to suffer in the cause of Christ? What causes people to open up their mouth when they know, you know what, my co-worker's not going to like this. And my boss is not going to like this. And my mom or my dad's not going to like this. Or Xi Jinping's not going to like this. What causes people to live out the gospel? It's because they have a certain hope. And they could sit in prison, chained. But as Sergio prayed, and maybe some of you prayed as well, the Word of God is not bound. <laughs> Paul could sit in jail and say, I have sweet victory. Sweet victory. 
because I have a blessed hope. Remember what Paul says? I know whom I have believed. That's a great song. I wanted to sing it, but I didn't, I didn't know what it was called. Uh, you know that song? I know whom I have believed. Mm, that's, that's all I got. Okay, that, that's the title? Okay, well, praise the Lord. That's a great song, brethren. But do you know whom you've believed? Again, going back to, to, to know Him. We have a hope. A certain one, brethren. Go out and live for Christ. And you know what? If you suffer for it, you suffer for it. Praise the Lord. That's okay. We don't desire that, but you know what, brethren? That's going to come as well at times. We have a certain future. We've got to press on more, more and more to follow Christ, knowing our blessed hope. Certain future, eternal life, in the very presence of God. Number three, Paul prays here. Verse 18, that we would know our status as God's glorious Inheritance. Look at what he says here. That you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Brethren, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. We learn here that God has an inheritance and it is His people. You and I, we are His preserved and treasured possession, brethren. His inheritance. And this is all over the Old Testament. All over the place. You go look this word up. There's, there's a number of verses everywhere, but just listen to some of these. Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, who He has chosen for His inheritance. Same word. Psalm 28, 9. David prays this. Oh, save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Psalm 94, 14. Yahweh will not abandon His inheritance. But brethren, it's not just for Old Testament Israel. Okay? It's not just for Old Testament Israel. What do we read in Psalm 2? Ask of me. Ask of me. The Father says to the Messianic King, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage or inheritance. It's the same word. I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Brethren, we belong to Christ. We are His inheritance. The Father gives the Son an inheritance and it's the nations. All of them. They're His. He reigns over them. He came and shed His blood to purchase the people, brethren. To purchase you. You! And listen, this is no ordinary inheritance. You are His glorious inheritance. That's what the text says there. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance? Now, if you don't feel that way currently, you don't feel too glorious, I understand, brethren. I understand. I don't feel too glorious. I feel oftentimes like a failure, like I fail my God. I don't feel very glorious. And maybe you can sympathize with that as well. Maybe you don't feel very glorious. But brethren, you mark it down. You and I will be presented on the last day 
before our God, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, in splendor. Or you could translate that gloriously. <laughs> Without spot or wrinkle. Brethren, He is beautifying His bride. We're going to get there. That's a glorious passage. Ephesians chapter 5. Washing His bride with the water of the Word that He may present her to Himself gloriously. Gloriously, brethren. You matter to God. God cares for you. He cares for you. And some of you just need to know that. And some of you need to be reminded of that. You are of great value to your God. You're of great value to Him. He will not abandon you. <laughs> he will save you and He will shepherd you. He will carry you. He will defend you. And He is beautifying you. He loves you. You are His glorious inheritance. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. And may God help us to know more and more and more of just how precious we are to Christ. Brother, He came and shed His blood for you. <laughs> the Father sent His Son for you. The Father and the Spirit sent, or the Father and the Son send the Spirit for you to seal you that you'd be preserved, brethren, that you would endure to the end. He loves you. He loves you. Will you pray for one another to know that? Will that govern our prayer life for each other? Father, help them to know more of that. Give them your spirit to help them to see of what great value they are to you as your inheritance. Remember, I, I, had, I had mentioned this in the beginning uh, of the first sermon that we did here. There is, there is just such, I don't know how to, I guess, put it in words. There is such glory in the book of Ephesians. There is so much in here, brethren, that you should just meditate upon. So much to meditate on. So much. May God help us to understand. Lastly, brethren, Paul prays here that we would know the magnitude of God's power that He has put into effect for our advantage. Look at what he says there, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. All. Paul goes on a little, uh, uh, a little rampage is the wrong word. That's not a good word. Um, an aside, what, what's a better word? No, not a, no, that's a worse word than rampage. A ti what would you say? A, a tirade? A rant? Okay. Maybe there's no good word, I guess. But, but Paul, is, he is so overwhelmed with the power of God that he's working towards you, then he just starts explaining that power. And we're going to get to that in a minute. 
But, but, but the, the passage is building up to this. And you just see it really with, with the amount of words Paul uses. What is the hope to which He has called you? So, a little sentence. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? A little bit longer. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? You see how he, he, He's just picking up steam here. The power of God. And this is just not just any power. Not just any power. It is the immeasurable greatness of His power. The immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. It's working towards you. He's putting it into effect for your good. We're going to explain how in just a second. How, how, how is He doing that? This, this immeasurable greatness that He's working toward us, it, it, it surpasses, it's excelling, it goes beyond. This is the power that was unleashed at the Exodus when God delivered His people to be His inheritance and to give them an inheritance. When God made a mockery of those false gods of Egypt and He made a mockery of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, this is the power that He uses, brethren. The greatness of His power. That's what we read in Exodus chapter 15, verse 16. And that great song of Moses. Remember, they're delivered out. They come through the Red Sea. The enemy has been conquered. God has delivered His people. And then Moses teaches them that great song. And he says in there, that terror and dread came upon them because of the greatness of your arm. The power of God's arm was used to crush the enemy. And that fits the context very well here of Jesus as the victorious conqueror over all false gods and all worldly rulers. That fits the context really well here, church. Christ is King. He has triumphed. He is our captain. He has, he has uh, uh, he's been raised on high, far above all rule and authority and dominion and power. And we're going to get there in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. Brethren, this is, God has, has deployed power. Now listen, Paul's going to describe what God's power accomplished. Okay, so what of this power? Okay, this measurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Okay, well, well what of it? What, what did God do with it? Well, he says that God's power... Verse 20, according to the working of His might, and that, what did God use this power for? How did He deploy this power? Well, He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. This is the power of God. The one that raised Christ from the dead. And let me remind you, one day He will raise you from the dead with the same power that He rose Christ from the dead. His, His resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection, brethren. Christ raised by the power of God. He will raise us with the same power. He will cause you to live. To live again bodily with Him forever. Also, Amen. Also, <laughs> the power of God sat Christ at His right hand as victorious King. That's what he says there. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Now that's an allusion to what psalm? 
110, right? Go, turn over there real quick. Psalm 110. Paul is alluding here to that. I wanted to maybe read this for the Old Testament verse, but it's okay. We'll just read it now. Psalm 110. This is of Christ. And we'll just read the whole thing. It's good. Only seven verses. I just want to read it, but I won't talk much on it. A Psalm of David. Psalm 110. Yahweh says to my Lord, here it is, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And here comes this victory. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Brethren, Christ was seated at the right hand of God as victorious King by the power of the Father. Christ conquers. He's the conquering King. He's the conquering King, brethren. And in His ascension, He is ascended high above every name that has been named. He sits enthroned next to His Father and He's sitting down. He's sitting down. He's enthroned. His work is done. Now He reigns as King. Now. And what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 15, He must reign until He has put all His enemies underneath His feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is who? Death. And then the end will come. Brethren, Christ is subduing all His enemies. And He will continue to until the end. When the end comes, He's reigning, brethren. He is seated, as Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, high and lifted up. Far above, Paul says. And he just piles on the words again here. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Comprehensive list of Christ's rulership. He's reigning over all of it. All of it. Everyone and everything. Every name that is named. There is no power whatsoever that has escaped being subjected to Christ's rule. Paul just throws it all in there. If there's some name out there that I don't know about, it doesn't matter. Christ is king over it or over him. Every name that is named, all of it, brethren. Every demonic spirit, every wicked ruler and dictator is subjected under Christ. He reigns over all of it and all of them. Just as God did, Yahweh did in Exodus. He reigned over the false gods and He reigned over the political leader that worshipped those gods, Pharaoh. He crushed both of them. It's all subjected to Him. That's what God does in power. Now listen. What does that mean for you? Right? I, I just trying to put myself in your guys' shoes. Okay, that's great. That's cool. Well, what does, that, what does that mean for me? Brethren, this victorious Christ, we read, Paul says here, in verse 22, and He put all things under His feet. That's, and then 
and gave him, so who, who gave? God gave him as head over all things to who? The church, the saints. So what does this victorious conquering king have to do with you? Brethren, he's been given as head of the church. He's your leader. He's your captain. We are his body. We're united to him in faith. You see that? We're his body. His victory is our victory, brethren. His victory is your victory. The power of God that, that, that He displayed in making Christ victorious over His enemies is the same power. It's the same power that God is working on your behalf. On your behalf. The behalf of the church to conquer her enemies and to bring them in subjection. It's the same power, brethren, that God worked for Christ. He's working toward you to have victory, to have victory in the world. Now, remember the context here. We've got to think back to, to, to the book of Acts with, with, with Ephesus. Remember, remember the, the Ephesians there? This, this, is, this, would, this would hit home to them as it ought to us. That was a city and a culture entrenched in idolatry. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Remember? Demetrius, the silversmith, they all worshipped idols. This city was entrenched with superstitious worship of idols. All of it. And Paul reminds these Christians as he reminds us that it's all subjected to Christ. And therefore, it's all subjected to the church, to you and to I. Paul says essentially, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of these political rulers. I've conquered and crushed them. Don't be afraid of these demonic forces. I have conquered and crushed them. Christ reigns supreme over all of it. Go out in battle. As Paul is going to say later in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God and go do battle that you may stand. Why? Because we serve a victorious King. And this victorious King in power has been given to you as your head. <laughs> so we can go out in confidence. We can go out in boldness. We can go out in hope. That as Paul says in Romans, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet, the church. That's the power that God is working on our behalf. So brethren, in, in closing here, let us pray for one another. Pray for one another that we may know, that we may know more of who God is that we may know more of our blessed hope, that we may know more of our value to God as His inheritance, and that we may know more of the power that God is working toward us for our benefit in Christ as our captain, as our king, as He ascended over, all, over everything He rules. 
May we pray, brethren, that the Spirit of God would open up our eyes to all these truths, that we would walk in it, that we would walk in a manner worthy, worthy to the calling to which we've been called, for the glory of Christ's name. Let's pray.